of the Lord, Revelation chapter 21. John the Apostle says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, or look, the dwelling place of God is with man forever. He will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold or look, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words, they are trustworthy and they are true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. He will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, it was uh, four years ago now that Anna and I bought our first house back in New Mexico. And partly to save money and partly because uh, we love uh, the show Fixer Upper and we got a little bit too into that, we bought a house, our first house, that was a major Fixer Upper. Let me help you envision it. Uh, If you grew up watching that 70s show or um, any of the Austin Powers movies or you like the Beatles, that's what our house looked like. Completely, perfectly shagadelic. Uh, Our living room had this brownish pink shag carpet with school bus yellow walls. Uh, There was carpet everywhere, uh, even inside of the kitchen cabinets and around all of the toilets. Um, the, the, The wallpaper in the bathroom was this weird aluminum foil stuff with pot leaves all over it. And all the rooms were really like dark and closed off. It wasn't very open at all. And so uh, when Anna and I moved into the house, we set about transforming that house into a home. That was our vision. That was our dream, that this house has to become a home. And if you remember from a few months ago when we talked about Genesis 1, there's a really big difference between a house and a home. Do you remember what a house is? A house is four walls with a roof that supports your surviving. A home is much more than that. Home is the place that supports your thriving, your flourishing. So a house is just maybe the place you're staying right now, the condo you're in, the apartment you're in. 
But home is that place full of smells and memories and feelings and, and stories that make you you. That are a part of you now. Home is like you being a round peg stuck into a round hole. Home is the place where you fit. You belong. Home is the place where people know you and you know them. Home is where you have home field advantage. And so Anna and I had a, a very specific idea of what it would take to turn this ugly, run-down, shagadelic house and, and to turn it into a home where we could raise our, the three kids we brought home from the hospital out there. And in order to do that, we had to ask this question. What stays and what goes? And we asked that question to everything in the house, from the carpet, to the curtains, to the fixtures, to the walls, to the ceilings. And we were really asking an even deeper question. Does this thing in the house or this feature of the house fit with our vision for what our home is going to be? Does, does this carpet kind of fit the vision of what our home is going to be, not just what this house is going to be? And anything that fit that vision of what home was going to be, that, that belonged uh, in that vision, that was compatible with it, it stayed. Uh, with a lot of work, though, with a lot of elbow grease. And so those are the things that we kept. And we renovated it. We repurposed it or, or, or um, painted it or whatever else. And then every single thing in that house or every object in that house that did not fit our vision, our dream of what that home would be, I drove to the Las Cruces city dump. That is what it took to take that place of mere surviving and to turn it into a place of thriving or a home. And what's interesting is that this is um, just a tiny pitiful little example or picture of what God is doing with this world. You remember maybe back from a few months ago when we did talk about that, that passage, Genesis 1, the beginning of the story. That God, His plan, His only plan has ever been that this world would not simply be a house, but a home. Where we live, where every human being lives with our God forever. That's what this was all created to be. And, it, and it, was, it was designed to be a home, a place that supported your flourishing, was custom calibrated for you to come to max potential, maximum life with God and your neighbors here on earth forever. But we talked about what sin has done. It has corrupted and vandalized and, and thwarted all of, those, uh, all of the homeness of this world. And at best, this world is merely a place of, of brute survival, of getting by. And so what does God do to turn this house back into a home? Well, he does kind of what Anna and I were doing in our house. He's going up to everything in this world and he's saying, does this belong? Is it compatible? Does it fit with what I'm going to make this world back into? With what this new heavens and new earth is going to be? And if it does, it gets refined and cleaned and repurposed and renovated. And if it doesn't fit, it gets taken to the dump 
rejected. It doesn't get in because it's incompatible. And it's interesting because this is actually how John, the Apostle John, who's writing Revelation uh, to people in a very similar situation to what we're in, and we've been talking about all semester, people in exile, like refugees, far from home. John structures this whole chapter, Revelation 21, first by describing what's not going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Basically what God is driving to the dump because it doesn't fit. It doesn't belong. It's not part of the dream. It's incompatible. Verse 1, he says, there is no more sea. There's no more sea in this new heavens and this new earth. Now, maybe you're a person who likes the beach. I like the beach. I like the ocean. I like sailing. Does this this mean that when heaven comes here to earth, that we're not going to get an ocean? Like no more, no more fun times at the beach, no more beautiful sunset cruises or whatever? No. Doesn't mean that at all. Because you've got to remember that for the ancient person, for the first century set of ears that was hearing John describe his sneak peek into the new heavens and the new earth, they would know immediately when they heard John say that, behold, there was no sea. They heard it very differently than us. Because the sea, for an ancient person, was a place of catastrophe. The sea or the ocean was a place of curveballs and unexpected tragedy and uncontrollable powers that would crush you under their force. The sea kind of personified chaos and pandemonium and unpredictability and death. You know, we were in Greece about a month ago with our RUF mission trip over there. And we were touring Corinth one day, and the the tour um, person was telling us, you know, even about Paul's journey from, uh, you know, from from Israel all the way up across Turkey um, to get to Greece. And uh, she said, even the the maritime kind of protocol at the time was, you didn't, no one did these cross-ocean journeys like Christopher Columbus. They didn't do that because you would die in your tiny little boat, a victim of these massive forces of nature. And so because the sea was so feared, what they would do is they would never sail more than about a half mile off the shore. That way, whenever storms came up, whenever the winds started to blow uh, in a dangerous way, they could just, you know, turn the rudder right to the shore and get out of the sea. So when John says there's no more sea, what John is saying is that what Jesus is doing with this world, the place he is taking his people, when heaven comes here to earth, is that will be a place where there are no curveball tragedies. There are no text messages telling you horrible news that punches you in the gut and takes your breath away about a friend that got in a car wreck or a baby like we prayed for a couple of weeks ago with pneumonia that's not getting better. There's no more awful headlines of, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? Life is not kind of, we're not the victims of these massive forces of chaos that can crush us and hurt us. And it's not an unpredictable place where we never know if we're going to be okay or not. That's what John means when he says, behold, there is no more sea. He goes on from that in verse 2 and in verse 3. He really talks a lot about 
The dwelling place of God is with man and he will be our God and we will be his people and he'll be with us. And John is saying another thing that doesn't fit in this new heavens and new earth that God is taking us to is separation or distance between us and God. We were never meant to be far from him. Now listen, Acts 17, Paul says God is not far away. He is near to us, but doesn't he often feel far away? Doesn't he often feel distant? Don't you feel like he's a long way away oftentimes? John says in his, or shows us that in his vision of heaven, there is no more distance, no more separation, no more wedge between God and his people. We are dwelling in his midst. He is with us. We are with him. And then he says this. He says um, in verse 4 and after that, there's no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And I've never really realized, I've just kind of like just read past that line and saying, well, that's really cool. That's amazing. But did you appreciate the significance of these are like top shelf problems for humanity? These are the things that have never been solved, no matter the technology we have or the research we've developed or the medicines we have or the universities we have. Nothing has touched these things. Nobody has been able to remove death from our experience of life. Nobody has developed anything that has, put, that has kept mourning, sadness, depression, anxiety at bay. Nobody has found a cure for crying and the thousand causes for crying. Nobody has found a cure for pain. Not even anesthesia. Not medicines. Even, even touch in a real way the whole spectrum of physical pains we feel. But when you add into that relational pain, spiritual pain, emotional pain, mental pain, on top of physical pain, you get the picture. And John almost casually just lists off this bop, 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 bop. These are the things that will not be there in the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus finally comes and brings all of this story to a close and resurrection life fully and finally overtakes all else, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain nor will there be the causes of death, sadness, crying, and pain. Because, because, he who is seated on the throne says, behold, or look, or pay attention. Stop what you're doing and look. I am renovating everything. I am making all things new. And then down in verse 8, and later on in this chapter, in verse 27, John says something, and I bet when you, were, when we, when you had the passage up on the screen earlier, when you're reading that, you're probably like, man, why didn't Ben stop reading, you know, right at verse 7? Why did he read verse 8? Because that kind of complicates the passage just a little bit, don't you think? We have this beautiful picture of heaven, this, this stuff, and you're like, yes, give me more, give me more, and then comes verse 8. And he says, you know, basically the, the adulterers, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the liars uh, will, will be thrown into this lake that they, they will not, they don't fit, they don't belong in heaven. And, 
Here's what John is not saying that sinners aren't allowed into heaven. Okay? Um, Sinners are the only people in heaven aside from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the angels. Everyone else who is there is not there because they have arrived. They're there because they've been redeemed. They're there because Jesus has traded spaces with you and given you the consequences of His loving and righteous and good and obedient life. And so heaven is full of sinners, blood-bought sinners, not people who have arrived. So John's not saying that like, you know, heaven is a place for saints. John is, is saying that those who have throughout their lives persistently refused to bend the knee to Jesus, have refused to adjust their tiny little lives to this massive, infinite Jesus. Those who have refused to repent, the mockers, the deniers, the ridiculers, the scoffers. John is saying, I didn't see them in heaven. Which is to say, there is no place in this new earth for the enemies of God and for human beings who have aligned themselves as enemies of God. And so John is is saying there will be no persecution, no mockery, no open question about whether there's a God or not or whether he's good or not. But we will all know God and love him and know that we are loved by him and that we are known by him forever. That's what John is saying there. Not that, heaven, not that sinners need not apply, but that only sinners purchased by Jesus Christ who have looked to Jesus because they have nowhere else to look and because he is gracious, they will be in heaven. But those who have persistently, repetitively through their entire lives refused his invitation for mercy, for transformation, will not be there because they don't fit They don't belong. They're not compatible with what Jesus is doing with this place, terra firma, this earth. And then John says, not just describing heaven by what won't be there, but also by what most definitely will be there. And this is where it gets a little different. You know, I've been to a lot of different like funerals or talks or whatever when you kind of hear the way we Westerners think about heaven. And we kind of project our Western culture on what heaven's going to be like. So I have literally been to funerals where I've heard, you know, someone stand up and say something like, you know, if if Johnny loved NASCAR, they're like, well, Johnny's up in heaven riding around the track with Jesus. Or if if Johnny loved, you know, uh, baseball, well, he's out throwing throwing the ball with Jesus in the front yard. And and you kind of just... I don't know. I mean, it, it, you kind of roll your eyes a little bit, and you're like, really? You know, is that what heaven is? Um, I hope not if you don't like NASCAR. Um, but we hear these things, and we tend to think about heaven in the same materialistic terms that we think about life here at, in. And that's something that's pretty unique to Westerners. You won't hear many Africans or many South Americans or many Chinese Christians think about heaven the way we do. They see heaven for what it really is, which is what John sees heaven for. 
Heaven is the place where God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in the midst of their redeemed people, of his redeemed people. You remember, again, we talked about Genesis 1 and we said, home has always been more of a who than a where or a what. That's why home is so hard for many of you. Because there's no person, there's no who back home that loves or supports you. Home is about a who. Home is about the people who are there. Heaven is primarily about the, those who, the people, the persons who are there, namely God himself. And, the, and God himself, he is the, the, the massive center of this whole vision of John's, and, of John's vision of heaven. John is obsessed with it. It's, it's what he talks about the most. God is there. He's with his people. He's our God and we're his people. We're his sons, his daughters. And we're with him forever. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man forever. When John thinks of heaven, John thinks of his God and his God's people. Do you think of what's and where's when you think of heaven or do you think of whose? That's the best part about heaven is it's where your redeemer is, where your creator is, where your counselor and your comforter and your advocate is. And his presence will cover you like a mist, will bathe you like a mist. And John says, what else will be in this new heavens and new earth? Streets, he says further on in this chapter, a city, a canal, fruit groves, gates, city walls, meaning that heaven will be a place that's an engineering marvel. It'll be a place that is both built, but is continuing to be built and refined and pushed to the limit and researched and invented. It's a place of innovation. It's a place of exponential increase and fruitfulness and flourishing and thriving. It's a place of development. It's a place he compares to a city, a new Jerusalem, One other thing, Jesus, the one who sits on the throne, says, Behold, I am making all things new, not all new things. Which is to say that heaven will be, in some ways, a place that's a little bit familiar. There will be continuity between this life and what you love and that life and what you love. This life and who you are and your personality and your humor and your glory and your gifts in that life and in that world and all of those things. When you see those of, those of your friends or family who are in Jesus in heaven, you'll recognize them in some way, but they'll be so much more glorious. Jesus in his resurrection body post-crucifixion and resurrection was recognizable to his disciples He looked like Jesus. He acted like Jesus. He talked like Jesus. But he was there in indestructible, his his indestructible resurrection body. And there will be, um, there will be continuity in some way. Obviously, I don't have a clue in fullness what I'm talking about because I've never been there. But I do know that God has already brought into this world foretastes, real tastes of the new heavens and the new earth. Many of you have tasted it too. It's the sweetest, most euphoric, most brilliant, most moving moments of life. 
foretastes of heaven happen when you're in a small group and you are all free to let other people see you as you are, knowing that they will not and they are not judging you or rejecting you, but they are joining you in your moment, in your struggle, and loving you in it. We experience a foretaste of heaven when some of you or your siblings or your parents have been in the midst of horrible disease or accidents and medicine or medical care has restored them and healed them, taken away their pain or their limp or some disability. And in that moment, you have seen a taste of heaven. For some of you, when a, when a horribly torn or tense relationship is restored and reconciled, you have tasted heaven. But we only ever taste it in tiny and temporary ways here. Here one moment and gone the next. And also, even as I mention these very things, some of you are getting even a little bit more sad because your experience is of relationships that have not mended. Bodies that were not healed but passed away. And even as you hear me talking about these things, we're reminded that we are still exiles, still refugees on our way home. But we are not there in fullness yet, and heaven is not here in fullness yet, though it has started through Jesus' resurrection to invade this broken place. And so to wrap all of this up, I'd I'd say this, heaven is a place where the law of diminishing returns is turned on its head. And it's not like the longer you're there, the more bored you are because you've done, been there and done that and tried that. But the longer you are there, the more sucked into its majesty and its beauty and its fun and its glory and its electricity. And every day you're more looking forward to tomorrow. Relationally, spiritually, geographically, ac- academically, in terms of research and development, You're more on board, more in it than you were the day before, forever. Heaven's not a place of diminishing returns, but exponentially increasing returns. Because heaven is a place indwelled by the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God, who is not just made a brilliantly incredible earth, but is making an even better new earth and new heavens. You know, you know, this is kind of some theological talk we've been doing, but can we, can we bring this down to earth and describe it in a way that you have seen and that makes sense to you? I think we can. I've seen it more vibrantly displayed than anywhere else in the birthday of Bilbo Baggins in Lord of the Rings. And I, have, I don't think Tolkien was trying to make the connection with Bilbo Baggins' birthday party and the new heavens and the new earth. But every time I think of heaven, I think of that scene because those were people who were so captive to the moment, they were not even capable of being distracted, right? They're all there. They're dialed in. They're fully engaged in the joy and the happiness and the laughter and the dancing of that moment. There's fireworks going off. There's dancing, there's folk music going on, there's people with big mugs of beer dancing on tables, there's smiles on every face, everybody is all there. I think that is a picture of heaven. It is a perpetual celebration of Jesus' victory, of our God's victory that we share in with him. 
It's a place where you're always all there, always in the moment. Christian, this is your future. This is what's coming tomorrow or the tomorrow after or the tomorrow after. Jesus has secured this future for you. The second thing I wanted to talk about, really the second and third are tied together. Why does God show us all this stuff now? Is that a fair question? Jesus didn't have to give John a sneak peek into the new heavens and the new earth. He didn't have to fast forward through history and say, hey, John, let me show you where this is all going. Why did he do it then? Why tonight, sitting in this chair at RUF, are you hearing the end of the story in the middle of your story? Well, here's why. You have, we have got to be able to visualize the future in order to endure the present. We've got to see the future in order to endure the present. Look, have you been down to uh, the Business Learning Center area right at Lumpkin and Baxter, this new gigantic building they're putting up right now? What does every building project have in front of it on those two white poles? A picture, right? An architectural drawing of what that building is going to be or what that quad is going to be. And why do they do this? Why have, I mean, you can go back to Egyptian history and find scale models of the pyramids that architects had drawn then. Why do we have to do that? The reason we have to put up a sign of what that building is going to look like is to help you endure the present inconvenience and mess and disruption of the construction. It's to show you, yeah, this isn't done yet, but this is what it's going to be when it is done. It's going to be beautiful because those buildings take a long time. Those drawings serve to kind of fix everybody's eyes on what is coming right around the corner. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing when he shows John this vision of where the world is going. It's this architectural blueprint of what the new earth is going to be like in vibrant detail. This is John showing you tonight what your future is so that you and I might endure everything we've been talking about all semester. This life of exile, life as refugees, life in a world where we don't really fit. John wants you to see the end result where this is all going so that we might endure by faith and with grace the inconveniences, the disruptions, the mess, consuming effort, the pain of sanctification. And friends, this vision has got to become your hope. It's got to lodge itself in our imaginations that this is what God is doing with the world, with our stories. Here's the point. We never simply live in the present tense. We're not little kids anymore who are completely consumed by the present tense. We're, we're future-oriented people. Ben and Jane are getting married in a couple of weeks. So are Ryan and Rebecca. I was talking to him earlier. His future reality is totally changing how he lives today. It changes his motivation level with studying for finals. It changes decisions about how he's using his time right now. Some of you have an organic test coming up next week. A full seven days away, and it is already changing what you're doing tonight. 
A future reality is changing your present living. That's what Revelation is really all about. John and Jesus through this passage are presenting are holding up before you a certain future reality that it might absolutely change our present living. And this is powerful. There's a guy named uh, Sam Cook that only probably a few of us in the room uh, even know his name, but he's called the, the Godfather of Soul. Really one of the first key people to kind of venture down that path. And in 1964, he writes a song about the civil rights movement called A Change is Gonna Come. And the song is really just this extended groaning of what the world was like in 1964 for an African American like him. But he says that the chorus of that song, oh, a change is going to come, a change is going to come, and I think I can carry on. All of those civil rights leaders, those men and those women, by the hundreds of thousands, had their eyes so fixed on a future reality that they knew would come by God's grace that it completely changed how they conducted themselves and how they lived in the present moment. They reverse-engineered all of their, all the pieces of their life today so that it would better aim and hit that future reality. C.S. Lewis tidies this up really well, and then we end with a story. If you read history, uh, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next world. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. It's brilliant. You would think that the more you think of that future reality, that heavenly home that's coming here, the new heavens and the new earth, you would think that the more you kind of teleport to that world, the more irrelevant and kind of naive you would be in this world. And Lewis rightly says, no, 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 it's just the opposite. The more you dwell in that future reality, the more you become an expert in it. The more you're on board with what Jesus is doing in the world now, making all things new and reconciling everything to himself. So how do we become experts on this future reality? How do we fill our minds with what's coming right around the corner? We do what refugees do. When we were in Greece, no matter whether the person we were talking to was a Syrian refugee or Iraqi or Afghani, all of them, to a person, told us stories of home. And when we walked up and overheard them, they were telling each other stories of home. The food, the park, the job they had, the friends they had. They were keeping themselves freshly ready to return. They were keeping the memories of home vibrant and alive. They were daydreaming of home. They were groaning for home. They weren't growing stale and too accustomed to where they are at the moment. And we have to do the same. And the way we do that is when you are in your moments where you feel your exile, your refugeeness, your out of placeness in this life, your brothers and sisters here in this room and at your churches remind you of home. They lift your eyes and look to what tomorrow is going to be. A change is going to come. There's not going to be any more crying. There's not going to be any more pain. There's not going to be any more struggle with that sin pattern. 
And it reminds us of where we're going. And we immerse ourselves in Scripture, this story, that it might become our story and not some other view, cynical or dark or hopeless, aimless view of the future. And we work towards reverse engineering everything in our lives to fit this certain and future reality. How does all of this play out in real life? Let me end here with a story. This is a story from a a campus minister friend of mine um, out of a church in Boston. And he he told us uh, this of of one couple in his church. Uh, They got pregnant. It was their first pregnancy. And a few months into uh, the the pregnancy, um, the wife gets some blood work done and the results come back that this baby uh, had a, had a genetic uh, dysfunction that would virtually guarantee that he would only live a couple of days or weeks outside of uh, the mother's womb. So the news just completely devastates this couple. They're scared. They're sad. They're heartbroken. But it's their son. They're not going to kill him. And so they, they, she carries her son to full term and they deliver him and they never really get out of the hospital. He's in the ICU the whole time. They stay by his side. And about 10 days later, he passes away. The doctors told their parents. They shot straight with them. They say, hey, look, if, um, if you have another child, the chance is it's almost certain that this genetic disorder will affect that child too. And so, you know, we really strongly urge you to consider not getting pregnant again. So the husband uh, gets a vasectomy, but only a few months after that surgery, uh, the wife finds out she is pregnant again. Um, He didn't know that vasectomies are not 100% all of the time. And so uh, they get the horrible news again that, yes, this next son also has this genetic condition. But this time, uh, when their son was born... um, The husband and wife had been praying for nine months. Their hearts had been prepared, even though they were weeping, even though they were broken. They took their little baby boy home uh, after that first day in the hospital. And they canceled life. And they stayed home with their newborn son. And he napped. And they fed him. And when he woke up from his naps, they lied on the bed with him. And that dad would lay by his son, running his hands through his, through his hair. And he said, son, I'm going to tell you about the resurrection. I'm going to tell you what Jesus is going to do with this world. And it's beautiful. And they did that every day until their little baby boy passed away. Friends, don't you know that God sits with you in your pain, in the pain and the brokenness of life in this broken world, of exile, of of feeling and being like a refugee? This view of heaven is not wishful thinking. It is sober realism. And the more we dwell on this certain reality, the more our lives now begin to change. And if you don't know this Jesus that we've been talking about, if you're not connected to him, we, let's talk. Let's figure this out. Because he is merciful. 
He is not a hoarder. He is not an exclusivist. He came to save sinners. He came to save those and bring heaven to you and to bring you to heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are not just uh, the Jesus of this passage or the Jesus that's making all things new, but you're the one who's making us new. I pray tonight that even through this passage, you would continue to make us new, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would obsess us and, and um, fixate us with these views of what is happening, what you are doing, even starting now with your world, that we might live differently now. We pray this all in your precious name. Amen.